Welcome to the Madrigos Midwest podcast, Mental Health Matters, where we discuss mental health matters because we know that mental health matters. Welcome to the next episode of the Madrigos Midwest podcast, Mental Health Matters. For this episode, it is our privilege to host an expert in the field of addiction, Menachem Poznanski, LCSW. Menachem is the director of the Living Room, a division of Our Place in New York. The Living Room from its home base in Brooklyn at the Fannie Capellius Recovery Center. And with locations in Muncie and Cedarhurst is a recovery clubhouse program for Jewish young adults and couples in recovery from addictions. Menachem is also the author of Stepping Out of the Abyss, A Jewish Guide to the Twelve Steps, and Consciously, Six Steps to Living Vibrantly with Our Creator. Nachum is editor of The Light Revealed, a social media publisher focused on the messages of Jewish spirituality and hosts two podcasts, one called Consciously and the other Practically of Fabringen with Rabbi Mayor Prager. Nachum received his master's in, in social work from the YU School of Social Work, Wurzweiler School of Social Work, and lives in Cedarhurst, New York with his wife, Naomi, and their children, Zoe and Tani. And in this episode, Nachum discusses many elements of addiction how we can best be there and help those suffering in our community, how we can create a community for them and some practical tips and insights that each and every one of us can apply to our own lives. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much, Menachem, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking this time. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? Grateful to be here. Great, great. So uh, why don't we start just by you telling our, our listeners a little bit about yourself, if that's okay. Okay. Um, not sure exactly. I think, first of all, thank you for sending me the questions. Give me time to think about it. That's always nice. I wasn't sure where you want to go, but uh, I'm a social worker, as you know, you've heard in the in the introduction. I, I work primarily with people in recovery from substance abuse and other addictions, um, and that's been like most of my career. I've been doing that for 17 years, and I've been a social worker for about um, close to 20 years. So it's been most of my career doing that. Um, I didn't grow up. I mean, I live in New York in Cedarhurst with my wife Naomi and our kids uh, Zoe and Tommy. Um, and um, I didn't grow up in New York. My wife actually grew up here in in uh, in, Cedar, in Rockaway. But um, I grew up around uh, California, Florida. I actually started out on the uh, eastern end of Long Island. My family was not observant or orthodox. They're pretty religiously observant, but not orthodox until I was around 11, 10 or 11. Uh, we became religious, uh, spent some time in Florida, and then eventually, ultimately ended up here in New York. Um, you know, went to Yeshiva High School, um, went to Israel. I really found myself there, I would say, and to some degree before high school, but, but uh, definitely there as well. Kind of found my passion. I really wanted to work with and help people. I spent a couple of years, um, I got married, I spent a couple of years in Colel, kind of thinking about doing like more of a chemist route. Um, and ultimately, I ended up in social work school um, with uh, designs for being a therapist. I uh, figured that was a good way to kind of make a living and uh, be able to help people. And about a year and a half in, um, I got this job at the living room. Uh, I was also working at the time on Madragos in Five Towns, actually kind of developing that, which is a teen center. Um, but I got this gig 
job. Someone offered me a job to take over this program that was is now called the Living Room. Which is a, the idea was to have a clubhouse for young adults who are in recovery, people that are coming out of treatment, give them a place that they can go now that they're living their lives well. You know, there's a lot of supports for maybe younger kids that maybe are acting out, but what happens when they come back? Where can they connect? And uh, along with two partners, Akiva Perlman, who's a very prominent therapist, very well-known, and uh, Gitto Fon, who's also a very, very accomplished social worker, we started this program called The Living Room. And uh, that's been like my whole career. That's, and that's been really my whole life. Um, for 17 years is finding ways to help people in recovery help themselves, um, find them, help them to build um, long-term sustainable recovery is a term that we use at the living room. Um, it's almost anyone who knows anything about addictions and anyone who knows anything about adolescence and anyone who knows anything about mixing adolescence and adolescence and addiction um, knows that the idea of some kind of long-term sustainable growth, it would be a miraculous impossibility. And um, part of the miracle is that uh, it's not impossible. It's possible. And that's what we're focused and, de- and uh, dedicated to. And that's what, that's what I do. Um, you know, and that's included all sorts of things, private practice for a period of time, um, other things. And then as maybe we'll talk about later, I'm fortunate to become an author and to write books and other kind of literary and creative projects. And that's kind of where I'm very focused on now, building that, where I find myself most uh, expressed. That's who I am, a little bit. It's amazing. That's amazing. And uh, you are giving so much in so many ways. So that, that's, that's grateful. And I will say that I guess we'll get along because my son is also named Tom. So, uh, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> but, uh, and Dr. Perlman, we actually just recently had him give a uh, fantastic parenting program for us. So he's... Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was one of my closest friends and he's one of the people I admire most in the world. Um, he's really remarkable. He's really special. He's a gift to Jewish people. Um, yeah. So can you, and you started speaking a little bit about the living room as uh, your organization and, and a lot of what you spend your time on. Um, so can you go a little bit more into kind of what, what goes on? What, what, is, what goes on at the living room? Right. Okay. So the idea behind the living room was people engage in engagement and of deal with challenges. Challenges is a challenge again. They'll go to rehab or they go to outpatient rehab, they send to a psychiatrist, they get medication, and they go to recovery meetings, um, which give them support in order to be able to stay clean and sober. But what we found over time, I guess to some degree on the front end when we started, you know, I mean, we start what we started with it's you know 17 years into the process. So kind of like obviously I'm playing like a big catch me up, but what we found was there was a lot of there was a lot missing in the cracks between all of those things. There was people's family, there was their treatment, their clinical treatment, and there was the recovery support. There were a lot of gaps in between. And we set out to form the living room into the the kind of organization that fills those gaps for those people. And what we've... On the premise that if we did that, it would um, reduce um, relapse and recidivism, which is a huge challenge in recovery. And it would really enhance people's lives and create a community for people that don't really have a community. And then eventually that they could move on and become 
you know, active participants in the Orthodox and the Jewish from whatever, in their communities, wherever their communities are. Um, and that's what the living room is. The living room is focused on filling all the gaps that, are, that emerge for a young person. Um, so that what that includes is like, uh, we do a lot of socialization-oriented stuff, which means like we have fun uh, in the recovery world, what you would call fellowship. Um, we provide different types of groups and meetings that are adaptive, meaning they're, they're very obviously not post-step meetings. We make that clear to people, not because we have anything... I mean, I'm the biggest fan in the world of the 12 steps. I really, really love the 12. I believe in them tremendously. Um, but there are things, let's say, that a young adult Jewish person can't really fully talk about in a meeting because the people there just don't understand what they're talking about. They don't understand what it's like to live. So create an environment where they can have a meeting where they're around other Jewish people. They, they'll be able to talk about those things and have identification that they wouldn't get at the meeting. Um, it also includes... To some degree, you know, not that our goal per se overtly is to make them more religious or to inspire them to be more religious or not religious. It's not really our goal, our goal is to help them, encourage them in the path that they want. But many of them, many young people who return and build a life of recovery, want to reconnect with Yiddishkeit and creating pathways for them to do that. Um, and then the other things that we kind of do are providing resources and support. One of the things that people don't know and don't realize is that when you go through addiction, there's an initial phase of intervention in and around the addiction itself, the fact that you're addicted to drugs and addicted to a life of substance abuse. Oftentimes, there's acute intense trauma that can be addressed in the early phase of treatment, sometimes not. Um, there's also oftentimes other psychological mental health factors that have to be addressed. And then life skills stuff vocational, all those things. Some of those things are things that we help with, um, like the vocational stuff, life skills training, money management, all things that young people who didn't grow up in society lose out. They don't learn how to handle money because you know, they're, the way they handle money when they're in their adolescence is not the way the rest of us do. So that's part of it. But one of the things that people don't necessarily realize as somebody is successful in achieving and attaining a life of recovery there comes a point at which they hit a certain wall and they start to have to really look at all some of the factors that maybe led them down the path of that addiction in the first place. Uh, sometimes people make the mistake in my mind and they think that by addressing the underlying thing, they'll get rid of the addiction. But really the addiction kind of exists on its own. And sometimes let's say dealing with trauma is important. But then as people in recovery go through life, when they hit three, four, five, six years of recovery, especially as their lives get more full, they get married, they have children, which are all things that happen at the living room. We have a whole couples program now because of all the people that have gotten married, people that have come in, young, young couples that come in, but also people that have gotten married. You know, their traumas, their mental health challenges start to really rear their, rear their heads. So that is a very, very critical thing. It's not like all the time, but like on a consistent basis, we have four or five people that are in that phase and it's helping them find mental health supports that they need, especially ones that are recovery-informed, understand their recovery, and help them deal with those kind of challenges, even crises. I mean, they don't tend to get to crisis, thank God. And what we found is that there's the reason that if you go to the rooms of recovery, there are, you know, there's people with a year, two years, three years, and then there's a drop-off. There's much less people with five years, and there's much less people with 10 years. And my theory on that, and there is research to reinforce this is that as people move on in recovery, the reason why they don't get past three years or maybe they kind of recycle 
uh, is because they don't have the resources. Their recovery will take them only so far, and it can take them on in the sense that it can help them stay clean, but they, they need to get other help, they need to get outside help. And having a mechanism in place, that's like a, it's a big little thing that we do, you know, kind of like really helping them, making sure and filling those gaps. Um, so that's what the living room is dedicated. But more than anything else, I want to say that in the living room, I tell people all the time, and I think this is a really important thing for an organization, any organization that serves people. Um, there's the living room, the institution, and that's nice, and that's everything I just described. And then there's the living room family, and that's something that's much more important than the institution. And what the living room is more than anything else, those are things that the living room institution, the organization does. But more than anything else, we're a community, um, a community of care within the broader Orthodox community, Jewish community. Uh, in New York, and uh, people feel that way. They feel like they're part of something, something special, and that's critically important, uh, especially for people that oftentimes grew up feeling like they didn't fit in, um, like they didn't, you know, didn't necessarily feel comfortable in their skin. So giving them that uh, really helps them. So that's what we do with the rooms. A lot of it is also helping people to feel a part of and encourage them. Amazing, um, unbelievable work, and and it's. It's great to see that there's someone who's really looking to fill those voids, like you're saying, that others don't address. You know, it's not just one more organization. It's one very unique organization that's targeting you know, a specific population, but uh, that really no one else is, is doing. And that's, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. You know, oftentimes we have the impulse as people to want to like have a one-stop shop fix for everything. And oftentimes, and like in particular this, but I think it applies to other things, you know, realizing your limits, realizing like your purposefulness and realizing that, you know, sometimes it takes a village, so to say, as they say, um, but having multiple organizations that do multiple things, you know, just today, I mean, I get calls all the time. People want, let's say rehab placement. Well, you know, you must do rehab placement. So I give you some advice, you know, I can tell you what, who I see is doing good work as I see the back end, but there are other organizations Right, like I say, like it's a movement, it's a big kind of referral back. Like they do that all day, right. but then do their work. You know, there's no reason I need to recreate the wheel, and that's a big philosophy for me. And I think that too often, we, in, in the rush to try to do everything, we do nothing. Right. You know? right. So uh, that's like a big that's a big driver in terms of spiritual principles behind you know why we developed the living room the way that we did. That's, that's, that's a great point. And, you know, as someone who you're saying so much of what you guys do is to focus on the community, you know, using the larger Jewish community to pull our resources together instead yeah. of what we as an organization per se have to do, you know, uh, right. amazing. Yeah. I, I'm curious to hear more about how you find this, you know, this sense of community uh, as a powerful tool in the sense of recovery and, you know, continued success. Right. Yeah. You know, community is such a critical part of life. It's such a critical part of, um, you know, what we do and how we operate. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a principle, you know, I am, I'm such a fan of the, the 12 steps and there's many different kind of pathways or streams of recovery, but the, the, the ultimate one or the, the original one is, through the lens of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, second, second to that, Narcotics Anonymous, which is also very significant in its you know, philosophy and way of seeing things. But Alcoholics Anonymous was the original 12-step program, the source of the 12 steps. And um, Alcoholics Anonymous has, 
you know, their logo actually is a circle with a triangle. And the triangle is a kind of has a, a lot of symbolic significance. And part of the reason that the triangle has a symbolic significance is because it, it represents what they call the three legacies of unity, service, and recovery. Actually, as Jews, uh, triangles are you know a vital part of we talk about the shape of triangle and the symbol symbolism of triangle. The Maral in particular talks about that, you know, the three primary relationships of us, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with, with God, and our relationship with others. Um, but in the frame of recovery, in this frame of the 12 steps and specifically Alcoholics Anonymous, unity, service, and recovery, which ostensibly amounts to unity being community. Uh, service means helping other people. And then recovery is the actual work that we do on ourselves. And, um, you know, our impulse as people is to want to be self-sufficient, to want to be our own person, to want to be a self-made man or woman, um, particularly today. But even in the, you know, in the, in the Svar Makadosh, on the, on the Pasuk, I think it's in Yeshaya, it says, you know, I am, I have the river, you know, Paro, conceptual, symbolic Paro says, I have the Nile River. It feels, it, it, uh, it feeds all of my fields. It gives me, I don't need rain. I don't require the gods above. I have the Nile. I'm a self-made man. Right? And that represents the Svarm explain that part of us, the part inside of us that desperately seeks to not need anybody else to be self-sufficient, you know, and obviously self-sufficiency is a good thing. Um, you know, I, I have kids that are um, adolescents, young adults, and uh, everything I'm trying to do is help them become self-sufficient. That's my job as a dad, to try to help them. I'm talking about parent's job from the beginning. You know, I often like to say, you know, the, you know, parenting is a journey from absolute dependency to absolute independency that lasts about 30 years, right? That's the goal, right? We get them from, and it, it kind of moves across. Oftentimes, you're, in the, you're, in, you're working with adolescents, oftentimes right in that middle section, 15, 16, 17. That's where it gets complicated because the dependency scale has shifted. You know, they're more independent than they are dependent, and we and they have a hard time with that, right? They're still not fully independent, but they're, you know, kind of getting used to being independent anyway. So self-sufficiency is a great thing, but there's a an ugly side of that coin, the coin of self-sufficiency. And that's that that thought and feeling that I don't need anyone else, that I'm okay by myself. Um, and um, if that's true for, you know, bottom of the barrel alcoholics, it's for sure true for, for everyone, for all of us. And, uh, but more than anything else when you, in the world of addiction, a sense of community and a sense of connectedness is vital for recovery. First of all, practical reasons. When you're going through a hard time, you need people to lean on. And oftentimes the best people to lean on are the people that have been through what you've been through, or who know where you come from, your people. And uh, when, when it comes to addiction, when it comes to navigating alcoholism and addiction, people who don't have alcoholism and addiction have a very hard time understanding what it's like to be addicted. And, and therefore, having the camaraderie of other other people that have gone have gone through what you've gone through, and then especially if you're an alcoholic or an addict, and you've also experienced, and you also have mental health challenges, and you've also experienced trauma, and you've also gone through the yeshiva system, which is inherently challenging and beautiful and wonderful and amazing, but also inherently challenging, and comes along with its own traumas, especially when you don't feel like you fit in, uh, and you're incredibly emotionally sensitive, and you're uh, you know, all the different things that addicts uh, struggle with. It's very meaningful. It's A, very easy to kind of feel very isolated. And it's very meaningful when you find other people that connect with you. So that's like on a practical level. Um, but on a deeper level, one of these 
we find out when we start to work with people in addiction and particularly people in recovery programs is that addiction addiction is a problem of relationships you know people that are addicted to drugs and alcohol strangely have a relationship with their drugs and alcohol people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol oftentimes form relationships with people that struggle with codependency right which is an enhanced dysfunctional form of relationship um you know and and all addictions in some way relate to relationing relationship so forming healthy community and healthy relationship actually becomes a vital uh, skill that an addict or an alcoholic has to learn in order to get better so on the one hand it's useful on a practical level but on a theoretical spiritual conceptual level it's critical that they have community if they don't have community if they're isolated then they don't really get well learning how to form healthy attachments learning how to form healthy relationships learning how to navigate the challenge of admitting dependency and also striving for towards independency you know so many young people that become addicted oftentimes have a distorted sense of independence you know it's like a lot of teenagers i mean all, many teenagers do um definitely addicts especially if their parents struggle with codependency you know they struggle to really find that place um in between healthy dependency and healthy independence and oftentimes what they form are unhealthy dependency and unhealthy independence uh, or unrealistic independence so community becomes critically important becomes a critically important vessel um, for healing and for help so that's why you know more than anything else what we do in the living room is create community for young people i didn't say that before explicitly but you know that's the most important thing that we do is create a that sense of family but that sense of community. Um, and I think that's true for all of us. I really, really do. I think that oftentimes we take for granted, especially, you know, I, I grew up you know, more out of town, more or less in New York, less in a large, huge, you know, metropolis and uh, Jewish community. Um, when you do, there's a million shuls and you can hop here and hop there and no one knows who you are. You know, when you grow up in a smaller community, you know, if they don't show up, everyone notices and everyone cares. And that's like a different way of living. And, and oftentimes, for those of us who live in large cities, uh, particularly in like in New York area, but I don't think it's exclusive to New York or the Chicago, LA, Miami. It's it's very similar. Um, you know, there's not as that same small community feeling, and you can kind of get lost, uh, and that can be very very destructive, I think, for people. So I think for all of us, it's like that to realize like we really need each other, not I mean on a practical level, but then also for ourselves for our own growth to become who we are meant to be. Wow. So community plays uh, many roles, from practical to, to deeper, to being held accountable, uh, really, really runs the gamut and, and, and has so many roles in both the recovery of, of, of an addict. Uh, and I would imagine you mentioned uh, that you had a, that you previously had a private practice. I think yeah. that the same is true with, with all mental health related issues as well. You know, the, yeah. the need for, finding those people who can understand us and who can help us and who can relate to us and who can hold us accountable, uh, I think is, I think is true across the board. But yeah. Yeah. On the clinical and that's one of the great values I've become such a big believer in group therapy. Um, it's, you know, over like individual therapy, oftentimes it seems so much easier to open up to an individual therapist and, you know, but when you get into a group, into group therapy, it's like a, you create a community of people trying to, 
support each other, encourage each other, hold each other accountable. And there's like a certain growth that occurs in that environment that's unbelievable. Really, really unbelievable. Do you guys, as part of the living room package, I, I guess, formal group therapy, or it's more of a informal kind of living style? So we, we, we specifically don't facilitate any treatment. We stay away from any form of treatment at all. Um, we'll do sometimes short-term life skills oriented like series and we'll do workshops and we do like recovery style meetings uh, and we do discussion groups and all sorts of other dynamic ways that are all, I mean, therapeutic. And as a clinician, you know, like obviously there's a, a measure of clinical association to the whole thing, but it's not treatment. And I mean, that's one of the beliefs that I have and that we have is to really separate, you know, what clinical treatment is and what, you know, um, enriching intervention is. Those things are different. Um, and to really kind of be able to separate those things and to ch cherish them. I mean, I've been on both ends. Clinical treatment is amazing. It's remarkable to, to be in therapy and to watch some, to be a therapist and to watch somebody like grow and evolve and become emerge out of their challenges like incredibly meaningful and amazing um and yet at the same time there's an incredibly meaningful part of the you know, my friend Sonny Pullman who runs uh, parallel programs to me within their workplace you know he always says like I'm just a classic social worker I just work with people you know I'm like every all the I'm all these guys uncle you know I'm like there for them and that's like a classic social work kind of like orientation as opposed to like the very kind of removed um, clinical orientation, you know, so like it's it's really respecting and honoring both of those frames. Um, I think is important. Absolutely, makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by the focus on this particular age group. Okay. Is that do, do you find a particular? Obviously, you know, increased independence. But what are some of the unique challenges that come up with this age group working with that, and also some of the unique opportunities? So, I mean, what's fun for me is I'm, I mean, I did a lot of time working with young adults, adolescents, like, you know, uh, 15 to 18, and that's incredibly meaningful. There's a certain orientation that they have, a certain zest for life, a certain optimism that young people have that's really exciting to tap into. Um, you know, sometimes somewhat delusional, but like exciting, you know. Um, but working with young adults, 18 to 35, that's really our focus, is really, really meaningful because, I mean, particularly those in recovery, we're talking about real people who are like really trying to work and develop themselves. You know, as somebody who's over 35, there's a certain like set in your ways kind of thing that happens, even though I don't, you know, I, I don't think we should ever stop growing. And I think we're always moving and moving and moving, but there's a certain there's a certain shift that occurs in our lives where we kind of like figure out what we think and figure out what we believe. And maybe it changes, but like for the most part, you know, I kind of, you know, I kind of figured out what my life philosophy is. Um, and then I'm building on that, you know, and to be engaging with somebody who's at a phase where they're encountering the challenges of life and, but also trying to build that, figure that out, uh, be working with people that are getting married and trying to form homes, trying to figure out with their spouses what their family values are, you know, which is something that a lot of us don't think about. And then we just show up and then we realize we have them. But, uh, you know, and to really think about that, it's like incredibly, incredibly meaningful. Um, I find it incredibly meaningful. On the recovery end, 
part of it is because, you know, when, you know, it's funny because when you say that you work with addicts, young people, everyone automatically associates that with teenagers because many teenagers struggle with substance abuse. Um, Many teenagers struggle with substance abuse that aren't addicts, even though they exhibit addictive, you know, uh, behaviors. And oftentimes they become addicted to drugs. You're not necessarily dealing with chronic kind of ongoing addiction. Um, and they're really at a phase through that. And a lot of the interventions are focused on trying to make sure that they don't get to that place. Um, there's a certain kind of communal institutional denial that goes into the idea that like uh, people that use drugs are very, very young. But the reality of it is mental illness and addiction is, addiction is definitely um, one of those. Um, it really starts to emerge in people's early 20s. That's really where it starts to come out. You know, when you have young kids that are abusing drugs and substance abuse, a lot of them are addicts, you know, that their addiction is primary, but a lot of times it's not. A lot of times they're struggling with underlying trauma and 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 really with other intervention, the drug use would really go away. As we see, you have kids that are struggling and then they go to Israel and they're surrounded with all sorts of really positive environment and they're Given a certain philosophy and way of life, and the rebellion love them, and they come back six months, a year later, and they're totally different people. And it's like almost like what happened? I, you know, a year ago you were like a disaster. You know, and that's normal. Okay, so what a lot of a lot of what happens is people get into their particularly in their early twenties, and they hit a certain wall again. You know, where life starts to get real, and if they have a substance use issue that they haven't really addressed and dealt with that substance abuse starts to evolve. The substance abuse issue starts to evolve to like an addiction. And it really becomes much more critical. So part of what we've kind of focused on is that population, instead of kind of being focused on young, young teenagers, we do have teenagers in the living room. We have to really make a commitment that they really are serious. They want to come. Like when young people want to come to the living room, we sit them down and say, this is an adult environment. You're welcome to come, but you need to like, and we're here to help you operate well in an adult environment, but you need to like realize you're in an adult environment and that's going to be challenging for you and it's going to mean you're going to have to grow up. And when they do that, it's incredibly meaningful. Um, but to really kind of focus in on those people that are starting to emerge with well-formed addictions and to really help them. Um, and the beauty of that is that I'm like the luckiest guy in the world because I'm dealing with people that really want to get well and are really dedicated and really appreciate when you help them, they don't take it for granted. Um, you know, and it's, and, you know, I have the opportunity to form really meaningful relationships um, that are, you know, everything I, I was looking for when I was sitting in Colel thinking that I wanted to like work with people, I never would imagine that would end up here, you know. Um, but I had never imagined I would have got it from where I got it from, but it's, it's, it's been very, very meaningful, uh, incredibly meaningful. It sounds like incredibly useful also for those who are uh, able to take advantage. And it's a really inspiring uh, approach. And, and, you know, you're right. You're the luckiest person in the world. I feel similar when I'm working with uh, clients who are also looking to, to grow. It's such an amazing opportunity to be the one to help facilitate their own uh, self-growth. So thank you for that. I'm, I, I'd like to shift over. Uh, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that you've started doing a lot, putting a lot of your efforts towards writing. You know, I know you've authored, I believe, a couple of books. So tell us, I guess, how you got into that and what your 
what your mission is with Dan and some of the content maybe that you put out as well. Okay, great. I'm really excited about that. So um, I always had an aspiration to write. I, I enjoy writing. Uh, it's part of my personal development. I write every day, a journal every day. Um, I try, um, but most days, most days I, you know, sit with a, with a notebook and uh, a coffee and I really, you know, write. And it's, it's, it's healing for me. Um, it probably started when I was in Yeshiva and I was going to like Musarvadin uh, and I would write them down. Um, the Yeshiva that I was in, Medrashmul, there was like a big focus on Aburos. So like we had to prepare basically a speech and we would give a speech to our peers. Um, and it was, that was a very, actually a very meaningful thing and something that I've tried to recreate was empowering each person to kind of have their own voice. Um, and we were take responsibility for per- preparing a VOD for our fellows, you know, and, um, and, you know, that was probably the first time I really kind of realized how much fun it was um, to write out your thoughts, to put something together. Um, and, uh, but I never really thought that was going to happen. One of the interesting things, people have been pushing me more recently to, to share this. It's not something I think about because it's so nothing for me, but I, could be it's worthwhile to share. So I'm naturally dyslexic. I was born dyslexic, incredibly dyslexic, actually. My parents um, made tremendous sacrifice to help me access, like to the degree that they like moved to California, uh, to get me access to treatments because I was not functional. I couldn't read. I mean, I was like very, very much behind. My mom was telling me recently, I remember this now that she was telling me, but I couldn't crawl because I didn't have the depth perception to be able to move my my limbs in the way that a baby crawls. I never crawled. I went straight from sitting to walking at a very late age. It was because of dyslexia. They didn't realize. So like they actually trained me to crawl when I was like uh, seven or eight or nine years old because that there's a critical developmental process in the eyes or something. I don't, I don't understand these things. That relates to... Um, and I still have it today. I'll be reading and I'll kind of... Particularly when I'm um, speaking publicly or reading publicly, I get nervous and then the words get all jumbled. Um, so... I guess because it was so hard for me to read and it was so difficult for me to read, it took me so long to learn how to read books. I became fascinated with authors and with writing and I always wanted to write. And uh, my first, the first book I wrote is actually my second book, uh, which is called Consciously, um, which was based on a safer Belovi Mishkan Evna. I was listening to the Shurim of Moshe Weinberger on Belovi Mishkan Evna, which is about Halek Aleph, the first Halek. Um, which is about building Vegas, building a sense of God's presence and connectedness in your life. And I was very enamored by it because I felt that there was he was really laying out a step-by-step process with exercises that someone can go through and being someone who's already enamored with the 12 steps, the idea of a Jewish book that was kind of laying out a real program that could have results was exciting to me. So I decided I was going to try to adapt it into English form. And I started working on that. And then I... Came across Pinterest that was written by Tzadik and Yerushalayim, some I'm sure who doesn't. Anyway, it was railing against the 12 steps, very, very negative against the 12 steps with a lot of misconception. Um, there was discussion that he had gone through Vlikashiv and and he was you know, going to try to postle the 12 steps to say people shouldn't go to the 12 steps. Um, I got a call from a clinician in Israel who's going to go then go to Rufayim Kanievsky and he was asking me to kind of like help guide him and how he should present things. And I realized that he was incredibly misperceived 
about what the 12 steps say and what the 12 steps think. And here he was going, I mean, it didn't turn out to be anything. My, my fears were, were not founded. But at the time I was here, I was working with all these people that are in 12-step programs. I'm a big believer in the work it does. And, and we, you know, we just, Robert Kursky just passed away. So particularly here in America, we kind of like, those of us who work with people in recovery and those people in recovery protected under his, you know, umbrella, you know, he, you know, gave, he gave the, uh, the hexer for 12 steps. But, um, so a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, a dear friend, Arya Buxbayev, I said, let's, let's, we need to write something. We need to put something down that speaks from a clinical voice, um, that speaks to rabbis and clinicians and family members that really explains the outlook and philosophy behind the 12 steps. And that began a five-year journey or what is now Stepping Out of the Abyss, which is a small book. Um, it goes through, there's two sections. The first section kind of goes through the underlying philosophy behind the 12 steps. And the second section kind of goes through the steps and gives exercises for people that are not in recovery to really try to get a sense of what it's like to work the 12 steps, to experience the 12 steps, even if you don't have an addiction. So it's like concrete exercises and the goal was to give a resource. So this was stories. We got five people to write their stories. The stories are interlaid within the book. So kind of give people a sense of identification. The goal was to do our part to get the word out there. And um, um, it, it's gotten very positive response. The recovery community appreciates it for the most part. I mean, initially, they tend to be very, very suspect and nervous. But, you know, after they saw, we, you know, the greatest compliment we got from that book was that my one of the people we asked to review the book was a PhD psychologist who also is an atheist. Um, and we asked him if he would review the book. Right? And obviously, the 12 Steps, God, spirituality is a big part of the 12 Steps. But he was a guy who's written a lot and, and he's, we know him. So we could ask him to do that. We said, would you agree to review the book? Because we wanted his feedback to see what his reaction was. And the greatest... Um, compliment I think I ever got uh, as far as writing was is that he said, listen, but he gave us comments. He, he made notes and he said, the thing I have a hard time with is I finished reading this book and all I want to do is go and read the, re the recovery literature, the big book of AA, the basic text of NA. I want to go do more research, right? So why is that? It seems like you guys didn't do the right job if I feel like I want more. And that was exactly what our goal was. Our goal was to open the door to give people a sense of interest. Uh, and that's had a lot of really positive effects. So that was, I kind of put, um, derailed, so to speak, my first project, which ultimately became Consciously, which is now my second book that, I, that was published this year, actually during, <laughs> in the midst of Corona, uh, gave me time to really finish up. And Mosaica Press, who published our first book, um, agreed to publish this one. This one's a solo project. Um, and um, thank God it, it came out right before the Yom Tovim, and there's been really good response to it. It's a small little, you know, small box. It's like a little handbook um, that really, I, none of it's really mine. I mean, for the most part, I, it's 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 techniques that I took from Bavavi, ideas I took from Bavavi, and added in some cognitive and behavioral type exercises, meditation, mindfulness exercises. That I thought fit in, um, and it gives like a real concrete path that I use myself for kind of trying to develop a sense of God consciousness. Um, and there's been a really good response to that. I'm really grateful. Um, so that's 
those are the books I'm working on. And then um, I've also been involved in two social media publishing initiatives. One is called Light Revealed, which creates um, content that's put out on Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. It's just like ideas, like we're running a series now called Spiritual Principles, where we go through one spiritual principle and talk about the way in which that spiritual principle is a decision, right? So it's like a spirit, like today, today's was forgiveness, right? You can find it on Facebook or Instagram. Um, so it's like forgiveness is a decision. I can like, I'd love to, I'd love to just say it because to give you an idea of it. Um, forgiveness is, is a decision to let go of the false hold we have over people, places, and things. Didn't behave or manifest the way we hoped or expected to. To choose to lean into a new start and a new narrative, to let go of the shoulds that seem to protect our rights, but instead lock us into the darkness of misery and hatred. Right? So it's like kind of like a, a point of reflection. And then each one comes along with a prayer that you can say. So these are like kind of just daily things. They're, it's incredibly meaningful for me. It's all emerging out of like just whatever I'm thinking about that day. And that one came because I was sitting with a amazing, incredible 22-year-old who's suffering from resentments against her parents who really, you know, didn't treat her very well. And she'd done all the therapy work in the world. And, you know, she was saying, maybe I need to go back and do more child work. And it's, you, know, you just need to, like, forgive. But how do I do that? It's like, oh, it's a, it's a decision. You got to just make the decision. Um, so that's like where that one came from. So that's incredibly meaningful. And then uh, I'm working on two podcasts. One is called Consciously, which is connected with my book, and I'm doing interview series, um, which is which is really meaningful. Um, that's those are focused not so much on concepts, but getting to know people um, on an interior level, and also grabbing kind of concrete spiritual suggestions that they have. And then another one I just started doing. Called practically a Fabrengan with a mashpi of mine. Um, over the years since I left Yeshiva, I've come enamored, particularly with Hasidus in general, particularly Breslov, but also mainly at this point Chabad. And one of my teachers in Chabad is a guy, Rabbi Mr. Mayor Prager. He's just mayor. He's a he's a businessman, but he's also a, a wealth of knowledge with Hasidus in life. And, and we kind of go through and we're kind of picking out little kind of spiritual ideas in Chabad. So those are all on all the podcast platforms. So where five years ago I was doing The Living Room, which is really meaningful and creative, and then therapy. Um, now I've kind of like, The Living Room has become my, has taken on the clinical focus, the professional focus, and now my creative juices are flowing there. And I, I, mean, I hope to be able to do more of it. It's it's something that like I'm really enjoying. Um, but uh, but we'll see, you know, but it's just part of life. You know, I hit 41 and I hit 40, 41 and I, you know, I needed to do something else. Um, I obviously related to what I'm doing, but that's, you know, so this is what I'm doing. Amazing. Amazing. And it, it sounds incredible. And the, the dyslexia piece is incredibly inspiring. I know you kind of glossed over it, but uh, yeah. incredibly inspiring about, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on that of your journey and how you overcome that to, uh, to be so so incredibly successful in that very area, really uh, fascinating and inspiring. And uh, for those listeners that want to get their hands on these books, where can they get them? Um, you can find them on Amazon. 
Um, you look, you can type in my name uh, on Amazon. Um, also, Mosaic Press, they're both um, available on their website. They do shipping around the world, Israel. It's in all, all, all Jewish bookstores also. Um, the social media content, um, Instagram at, at The Light Revealed. Um, on Facebook, you can search Consciously 62 and, and The Light Revealed. They're both, there's pages for each of those. Um, that covers the, the podcast and the, um, the social media projects. Um, so that's where you can find all that stuff. Any thoughts on uh, what your next book might be? <laughs> Any teasers? Yeah, I, I, I do know what my next book is going to be. I mean, I'm, I know what I'm working on. I'm on a long-term project. Um, it's going to be... Um, well, I don't know if I should talk about it. I don't know you want to talk about it. I, uh... yeah, I have some in mind. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. We'll see. I'm, I, I started the research already. Um, kind of on it. I've invested myself in a year of kind of research. Um, and we'll see, you know. Okay, you'll let us know. You'll let us know when that comes out. <laughs> you'll be hopefully done with the first two books. So we'll uh, be eagerly waiting wait for those. Thank uh, you. Not if, I, if I can give you one last question before I let you go. And yeah. that is uh, an exciting one for all of our listeners. For me in particular, I love uh, concluding in this way. If there's one message you want to get out to our listeners, get out to the, the community, the Orthodox community specific, what might that be? You know, I was, um, I'm working on, you know, you said, you said when we were talking earlier that, uh, you know, when you record a podcast, it usually is not, it takes weeks to kind of process it and get it out there. I know the, uh, the process. So this is somewhat less timely than it is. Um, hopefully it'll be timely in a different way. Maybe it'll be around the solution, but we just lost Rabbi Tversky, um and Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky, um, who actually wrote a chapter in Stepping Out of the Abyss. So I had a really privileged opportunity to interact with him and I wouldn't say I was close with him, but I have met him a number of times and he did agree to write a chapter. So I had an opportunity to meet with him a few times about that. Um, you know a lot of people who he's like saved, literally. Um, so... I, one of the things I'm doing right now, which I guess I'm assuming by the time this comes out, they'll have already been published, but for the Five Times Jewish Times, I'm writing some articles, hopefully, that are going to come out. Uh, and we're featuring the stories of four people. We're starting with four people. We'll see. Maybe we'll do more. People's stories of recovery. Uh, anonymously, uh, it's not meant to promote anything. We're not talking about a living room or our place or anything. Just um, discussing, trying to give expression to the scope of his impact on, on the Jewish world. And his impact was so enormous, but one of the ways in which his impact was most acute and unique was the way that he impacted the world of recovery and people in recovery. Um, and I think that there were people who were in recovery noticed on Facebook, there's so many messages, both Jews and non-Jews, but the singular impact that he had on the recovery community, particularly Jewish recovery, is is unbelievable. Like he is the forefather of Jewish recovery for sure. Um, and so as part of that initiative, you know, for the first article, the first story, actually this is the second article, um, I, I specifically went to look for one person who was very, very close to him. Not everyone had the opportunity to be very close to him. So this is a guy 
who's got 16, 17 years in recovery. Um, he was in treatment in Pittsburgh. So a Jewish kid in treatment in Pittsburgh, you know, always got special access to Rabbi Tversky, the opportunity to like learn with him on a weekly basis. So he really got to build a relationship with him. And he tells a story in this article. I interviewed him for the article and he told a story that about six months into treatment, he went to a, a wedding or a bris or something. And he ran into Rabbi Tversky there. And he was so excited to see Rabbi Tversky and he was smiling. And Rabbi Tversky turned to him and said, you know, if I never did anything in my whole life, watching you become a person who can smile would make my life worthwhile. Um, which is remarkable considering he, his accomplishments that he felt that way. I mean, everyone knows of his humility. It's remarkable. Um, and, and the story struck me in, in many, many different ways. A very different story that kind of, I don't tell the story, it doesn't give all the context to the message. I was once talking to somebody in recovery, NAA, and he was a young kid going to an AA meeting, a large AA meeting. And, and he said that uh, he's a fun guy, a fun kid, he was wearing his yarmulke, uh, sitting in the front of the room, very eager to hear the message that they had to offer. And, um, and, he, and in that room was a guy that came in, a Jewish guy, but unaffiliated. And um, as many times as he tried to go over to kind of say hello to him, that's kind of common. You go over to the new person. The guy was always very kind of harsh to him. Right? It wasn't so nice to him. He never built any relationship. They never really connected. Um, and they each kind of went on their ways. So five, six, seven years later, the, the guy tells me he happened to be attending a meeting in a different place. A random place. And he ran the main meeting. He was still in recovery, still actively in recovery. He went to a random place. And lo and behold, who's there in this place? That other guy, the newcomer, right? And uh, he's there. He happens to be there. He happened to have moved to his, this was in was Brooklyn. The other one was in Nassau County. And, uh, and this time, the guy was like nice to him and sweet and fun, nice. Um, and uh, the, the newcomer, so to speak. And uh, he said to him, he said, I want, I want to tell you something. This is the newcomer said to the little kid who had a little bit more time in recovery. I want you to know that I wasn't very nice to you when I first met you because, you know, you were young and eager and, you know, Jewish and religious. And I was nervous. You had an agenda and I was scared of you, whatever. And I, I feel badly about that, but I want you to know you saved my life. And the young kid thinking he's not so young anymore at this point. You didn't even talk to me. How did I save your life? He said, I want you to know that I walked down the steps of that church basement, a Jewish guy, and never thinking that I ever walk into a church basement. And I came down that day because someone had suggested I go to an AA meeting. So really, I didn't have any hope that I would get better. And I figured I'll go to the AA meeting. I'll listen to what I have to say. If it doesn't work, I'm going to end it all. I'm going to kill myself that day. And I came in, and in the front of the room, there's a little knucklehead with a yarmulke on in front of this room, this church basement. And I said, if he could be here, I could be here. And I stayed and I got sober. And this guy didn't even know. So the message those two stories give me is you really never know like the power of a smile 
of what you're doing for somebody else, of what you mean to somebody else, and of what the efforts you make mean. You know, a guy like Robert Tversky wrote 80 books, helped tens of thousands of people. That's how he, how do you do that? How do you accomplish that? You feel like getting a little Jewish kid to be able to smile is the greatest thing you could do with your life. That's how you get to do all the other stuff. That's the only way it goes. It's only through that. I'm with one more story. I just heard this on Shabbos. At one point, it's not Tzedek, who is a prolific author, who wrote like in every area of Torah. At one point of his Nasius of being a Rebbe, he was frustrated because he was so bogged down with Yechidus. All the Hasidim were coming to see him, and he never had time for learning and writing all the things he wanted to do. And he expressed his misgivings to his son, the Rebbe Marash, um, who eventually became the Rebbe Marash. He said, I, 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 you know, my greatest burden in life is my Yechidus. Like just having to sit here and listen to people, and it takes me away from everything. There's so many things, there's so much I want to write, there's so much I have to say. I don't have time for that. And the Rebbe Maharaj, this is the way the story goes. And the Rebbe Maharaj turned to him and said, and told him, he said, happy, I don't know. He said, he said, the truth is, you're forgetting that all of this, all of your writing, is only because of Yechidus. It's only because of the, the service that you're doing and helping other people. You know, whatever that means on his level, that tzaddik, I don't want to make that judgment. But if that's true for that tzaddik, it's for sure true for each of us. We never know the impact that we have and everything that we want to accomplish and everything that we think we want to do um, does not emerge from our own efforts. Our Christian votes in the other year, my, you know, my self-sufficiency, it emerges from uh, attitude of service and giving, um, I think. And I think that that's important. I mean, I'm talking to myself because I forget. I, I, I'm really talking to myself. I forget so often. Um, so I think that's that's the message that I that happens to be on my on my mind today. Perfect, perfect message. Couldn't have uh, asked for a better better message. And Menachem, speaking of giving and and not even knowing how far your impact is going. I mean, I know that you see a lot of the fruits of your labor. I'm sure from the living room and from your own practice and writings, uh, but I'm sure that is only a drop in the bucket of the difference that you really are having and the impact you really are spreading. And so thank you for all of the work that you do. And thank you so much for your incredible time. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great honor. Uh, you know, my, uh, my sister and brother, Ryan and Hershchin are in Chicago and the idea of doing anything in Chicago and making them proud Hopefully, I didn't embarrass them. They are very, uh, very loyal supporters. We are so appreciative of, and uh, in fact, your sister Brian is the one that, uh, you know, got connected us. So we're so grateful yeah. for that. So uh, thank you. Thank you for, for your time and for everything you're doing. Really I could not give them a shout out. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mental Health Matters. To learn more about Madrigos Midwest, visit us at madrigosmidwest.org. Please join us next time as we discuss another mental health matter.